You are listening to Mountain Bike Radio. Welcome to the Last Aid Station here on Mountain Bike Radio. This is Mark. This is show number 10 for the 2014 season coming out here in the early parts or actually, yeah, the second week of August 2014, reporting on some of the races that have occurred over the last two or three weeks. Um, thank you very much for keeping in touch. Thank you very much for keeping those tips coming in on the people I need to be getting in touch with. Um, and thank you very much for actually helping me improve this um, to being a great source of information for you guys for off-road endurance racing, be it gravel, mountain bike, or all the silly stuff in between. Um, but thank you guys very much for coming and tuning in. Um, if you're tuning in for the first time, I hope we like, or we hope you like what you're listening to. Check out some of the previous shows, some of the previous um, podcasts, some of the previous interviews. Thank you very much for showing up, and thank you very much for listening. Um, but anyhow, um, before we get really rolling into the race results, and I've got a bunch and bunch of race results, um, including um, race results from Leadville 100, or to Shore, Wilderness 101, Big Bear, uh, the Big Bear Grizzly, uh, NUE Series, a new event for them, um, the Off-Road Assault on Mount Mitchell, the Jordan Mountain Challenge, um, and then I also um, plan on uh, dis- today discussing um, some of the uh, standings in all the series. Now that we're about halfway through the season, we can actually see where the cream is rising to the top and who has the potential to actually carry some of those uh, series leads um, in the standings um, in both the National Ultra Endurance Series presented by Kenda um, all the way out, as well as the American Ultra Cross Series um, and see who has the potential to make moves and um, who's leading the standings at this point. Both series are in at the halfway point of the season. Um, before we get started, um, a couple bits and pieces of news. Um, first part is, is um, this has become, uh, I, I hate to use this term because I've always term used, I heard the term um, used with uh, NASCAR racing, which I am really not a huge fan of, um, and um, with uh, pro cycling, European pro cycling. Um, but it, it perfectly describes what's going on. Um, it has become a silly season of sorts. Um, silly season is um, always been defined as when all the different transfer rumors and everything is going on. And there are lots of rumors and confirmed movements across the cross-country and endurance cross-country teams for next year. Across all levels of sponsorships, different levels of the teams, the climate is changing for endurance mountain bike racing. Um, a lot of um, big sponsors, especially bike brand manufacturers, um, be it Specialized or Trek or um, Giant, are 
starting to finally accept endurance mountain bike racing as a legitimate part of the sport and focusing on athletes that concentrate on those races. Um, a perfect example um, this year would be Jeremiah Bishop. Jeremiah has always raced um, a mixture of cross country and uh, traditional cross country and the endurance mountain bike racing. Um, uh, and last year raced almost an entire season of traditional cross country. And the year before that really focused on that also, uh, even racing many world cups. Um, but over this year, besides the very early part of the season, he has been supported by his sponsors in competing in endurance mountain bike racing, um, and stage racing. And so it's very interesting to see a lot more people really focusing on that. We're seeing it across, um, in the UCI marathon cups, we're seeing a lot more money invested into those teams, seeing riders that just do that series. They don't do any other races. Um, the Topeak Ergon team is a perfect example with nearly half their riders competing at the endurance level. Um, and, uh, especially on the European side and then on the American side, the entire, almost the entire Topeak Ergon USA team concentrates on the endurance racing community. I think you're going to see a lot more of that going on. I've heard of confirmed teams that are going to be rising up. Um, you probably start to hear a lot more about it at Interbike, which is coming up here in the next, and I guess about four or five weeks. Um, and I think you'll start to see some of the maybe announcements. Um, and you'll also start to hear of people changing teams. I have talked to several pro riders who are, will be changing teams for 2005. 15, um, but none of that can be confirmed yet. They're still, um, they're still working out all the details, but many of them are, um, that rate, especially the race on the endurance side are looking for more support for, um, that what used to be a non-traditional part of the mountain bike racing scene and has becoming more of a legitimate thing. And so they're moving on to teams that support that endurance, um, focus a little more and allow them to train for that a little more without, having to cross train also for the shorter, um, 90 minute races. Um, so interesting the things will be coming on. Um, it's a possibility for USAC and our sponsors to get behind some North American riders, maybe send them to those UCI marathon races. That would be great. I think that would be a wonderful thing. Um, I think you could really grow the sport there and maybe get, have a chance for USAC to finally jump back in, uh, maybe bring back that UC or that, uh, United States, um, cycling, uh, I don't know, series, I guess they had on the marathon distance. So it really wasn't a national series as everything was from Colorado and West, but it was a shot and, um, it's kind of faded away, but hopefully they'll, they'll have a chance to bring that back. Um, maybe with more sponsors getting in, um, and supporting it. A little bit of sad news um, and bad news to report on um, the cancellation recently of a potentially great gravel race that was starting to really grow, grabs and get some footholds into the whole um, off-road community. Um, the Three Peaks USA, as of the end of uh, July, had been canceled by the promoter. Of course, that race um, really uh, was trying to continue the tradition of the original Three Peaks race in Great Britain, um, bringing that iconic event over here, trying to kind of simulate that race over built over here in the States. Um, really, um, really bad 
timing as it is was one of the eight races included in the American Ultracross series. And so racers who had planned on doing that to compete in the overall um, as maybe that is one of their four required for the overall We'll now have to um, find alternative uh, situations for racing um, and to compete. Um, and so there's no plans by the series um, to include a race in its place, at least for the 2014 season. Uh, for 2015, um, time will tell. Uh, but um, I can't say that I'm completely surprised, um, given um, that promotion companies. Uh, reputation of canceling events didn't happen a lot, but it happened enough that they had a reputation for canceling events. Um, here's to hoping that that race only has a one year absence and someone else either takes over the reins or that promotion company, um, gets things figured out and brings that race back. Certainly had the potential to really do some cool things. Um, and it was supposed to follow in the footsteps of that original three peaks race over in great Britain. And, um, I look forward to seeing that return for 2015. Um, one other thing to bring up that's really been bouncing around the internet and around the uh, forums and discussion posts and uh, Facebook. Um, and I, I, I can't help but come across a little bit biased because I just don't understand it. Um, I'll, I'm going to try to take, if I make a statement, I'm going to try to make a pro and a con to it. I'm trying to make this as balanced as I can, uh, but I'm sure I'm going to come across as biased as one way or the other. Um, and uh, anybody who's listened to the podcast probably knows which way I lean on this topic. But um, the topic is there's been um, some imp- increased number of former uh, road pro cyclists who have been convicted of uh, usage of performance enhancing drugs now entering ultra mountain bike races. Um, that being, um, Zabriskie at Leadville. Levi has raced previously. I can't remember where I think he raced peak to peak maybe in the previous year. Uh, but I, I do know that he's raced, uh, this year it was all over the news that he raced Downeyville and actually did very well. Uh, Zabriskie didn't actually do very well at Leadville. I mean, I think, I mean, for me, he did really well. I mean, if I placed in the top 50 at Leadville, I'd be extremely happy, but considering who he is and who he was, yeah, the top 50 is really kind of middle of the pack. Um, but that said, um, I understand their racers and I understand it's their mentality. And I understand that they um, have technically served their time. So there's nothing wrong with them racing these races. They're, they're, they're nothing. There's no restrictions held to them. Um, but nearly every confessed PED user, um, doper, whatever you want to call them, over the past three to four years, which seemed to be like where it really peaked, um, has after he's caught and after he served his time, has said that he's done with racing and he retires and he wants to move past it, he wants to spend more time with his family, he doesn't want to race anymore, he doesn't need to have that regimented training, he just wants to you know, ride his bike with his kids or um, spend more time with his wife or... Um, so if that's the case, these guys are training pretty hard to do really, really, really well in these events. Um, why are they even racing these events? Why would you put all that time and effort? Now, 
arguably Zabriskie probably didn't train that hard to place, you know, in the top 50 at, at Leadville. Um, but Levi to do what he did at Downeyville, uh, he's got to be training a lot. Um, so interesting thing. Um, I question whether it's an ego trip and I don't mean that to be a harsh phrase, uh, but I mean that in the broadest sense. I mean, do these guys feel, do they, do they need that affirmation of doing well? Maybe that's what made them, maybe set them apart. Um, that type of personality to always make sure they're doing, always having to do well, um, in their sport. Um, do they need the affirmation to hang near the front? Do they also need the recognition that comes for showing up with a whole bunch of, you know, 2000 other cyclists around who know who you are? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, uh, it would just be interesting to pick their brains on, on that topic. Um, my other concern, though, is are these guys, um, they're, they're, they've all served their time, and so they, they can get the entries and they can go do the races. I don't have a problem with them showing up. But are these guys getting um, being given special situations, um, maybe even compensations, to enter these races? Are they being comped entries? If that's the case, that brings up a whole other debate. Because um, I love endurance mountain bike racing and i don't want it to get down go down that road where we need to rely on guys who doped in another segment of the sport coming in and doing it in my sport i liked it when it was still kind of i mean i like it now where it's still kind of a part of the fringe i mean that's mountain bike racing but it's it's a different part of mountain bike racing i like it when it's it's out there i don't think we need to bring people from the outside um and I'm not saying they're being, com- I don't know what the situations are, but, um, but if they're being contenders, I just don't think that's, that's the best thing, um, for the sport. The reason I wonder whether they're give- being given, um, special, uh, situations or, um, entries or contracts or things like that is I question how Dave Zabriskie, um, as far as I know, had never, um, done any of the qualifiers for Leadville, um, but was all of a sudden, um, located in the, in the front corral. Um, I'm not, I wasn't at the event. I'm not really sure if he was given a call up that it brings up a, uh, that brings up more issues for me. But, um, yeah, I just wonder how he was, um, up there at the front of the race. But that said, um, if he worked his way through the pack, I don't have a problem with it. Um, but my, I think it's a poor business model if these guys are giving comp entries, uh, the promoters are giving comp entries. Does anyone really care um, that there's a rider next to me more known for what he got away with um, than for his results now? Um, I don't think I don't think the number of people who would hold an idealistic uh, point of view and not enter a race will be statistically significant, though to the number of riders on the waiting list who could care less and are going to show up for the race anyhow. That's just the way it is. I mean, Leadville's a big race and there may be, you know, you tell me that you're going to bring, you're going to allow guys that are still serving doping suspension because it's an unsanctioned race and they're going to be allowed to race and they're going to show up. Um, that maybe there are some people that aren't going to show up, but the number of people are going to show up, who aren't going to show up, going to be grossly outweighed by the number of of people um, who are more than willing to take their spots um, and probably pay for them, uh, pay handsomely for it um, just to get a chance to do that race. Um, so just interesting talking points. Um, 
I welcome them back if they're coming back on legitimately, if they're coming back for the right reasons. I, I welcome them back uh, for the love of bike racing and all. Um, I just sometimes wonder why all of a sudden um, it's happening a lot more seemingly in the ultra mountain bike racing uh ultra mountain bike racing world um, than it seems to be in other segments of the sport itself. So my two cents hopping off soapbox now and now onto the results at the Ordishore mountain bike Epic. This is an annual tradition in the Michigan and great lakes regions of the mountain bike scene, super fast course, which over the years has also added a soft rock and shore rock, which are lesser distances to that original now defined as the hard rock. Uh, family atmosphere, all-day festival with lots of kid races and other events going on there. Of course, the biggest attraction for most is that point-to-point style race, racing from the town of Nagani to the town of Marquette, tracing that historical route of iron ore from the mining areas of inland Michigan to the shipping ports of Lake Michigan itself. The race is, is relatively flat as far as mountain bike races go with less than 2,000 feet elevation gain over the 48 mile distance. The race is raced mostly on dirt double track, farm roads, overgrown primitive dirt roads with some noted sections of pavement at the start, finish, and middle um, with some scattered uh, traditional single track in amongst all of those sections. Race speeds are very fast for an off-road race, traditionally approaching 20 miles per hour for the front finishers. Uh, this year, despite a very hard start to the race up the first big climb of the day that strung out the field and created plenty of gaps, major regrouping occurred just after the top of the luge climb, with a group estimated by many to be 20 to 25 riders, with several chase groups just seconds behind. By the time the group had crested Misery Hill, which is a nasty, rocky power line type climb, and onto a short, short section of pavement with a tempo set so far, a group of seven riders had separated themselves from the front and were working together to increase that gap. That group included Cole House, Brian Matter, Jordan Wakeley, Tristan Schutten, Corey Stelgis, and Travis Woodruff. All members of that group would eventually put over six minutes into all others by the finish. Near Aid 4 saw some very impressive attacks by Brian Matter as he sought to reduce his group of seven prior to some of the longest downhill sections of the course. As the race descends down to the lake level finish midway between aid four and five near the 40 mile portion of the 40 mile section of the race, Matter was able to gain small gaps, but was always brought back with Cole House leading most of those charges back to his wheel. Several counterattacks to, to Matters were made by Corey Stelgis but were also quickly brought back by the members of the group. Matter had one last impressive grinding gut check of an attack on the wood chip climb, put the group on the ropes with only Cole House, who admitted to having some moderate cramps, when answering this move. He was the only one to close the gap to Matter's wheel as a duo entered the Marquette city limits on the final pavement section. The duo didn't have much opportunity to plan any type of tactical sprint, as Wakely, Shooten, and Stelgis were all within striking distance less than 100 meters behind. With 250 meters uh, to the drag race of sorts ensued between your top two with Cole House taking the win by just one second over Brian Matter. Behind those top two, Wakely takes the next spot just seven seconds behind Shooting and Stelgis, all within a bike length for fourth and fifth. Your winner of Order Shore, Cole House of Intelligentsia Coffee, 
broken cycling team in a winning time of 2 hours, 28 minutes, with an average speed of 19.5 miles per hour for the 48-mile course over Brian Matter of the KS Energy Service Team, Jordan Wakeley of 616 Fabrications, as we mentioned in that 3-up sprint for third, Tristan Schutten of Rolf Prime Altitude Sports, and Corey Stelgis of 5-9's Motorless Motion, filling your men's podium in the fourth and fifth spots, respectively. In your open single-speed division, Jeremy Carroll takes the win over Colin Snyder and Tim DeVost. In the women's race, a very close one was developing with several top women riding within two minutes of each other through the halfway point and aid station number three. But in the end, it was Jenna Reinhardt taking the win in two hours, 41 minutes, with Mindy McCutcheon just three and a half minutes back and Sarah Kylander-Johns right on McCutcheon's heels for third, just a further 25 seconds in a rear. In some sad notes uh, from that race, a rider was found unconscious and unresponsive on the course after failing to arrive at the finish. Um, after a short search, he was found in the final miles of the course just off the trail and was unable to be resuscitated. Uh, we here at the Last Aid Station and Mountain Bike Radio send our thoughts out uh, with prayers to his family in what is a imaginably a very trying time for those folks. The Leadville 100. This race culminates after a series of qualifying races and a lottery. Um, also, this has become a bucket race for many and claims to be the oldest ultra mountain bike race in the country. And like others, came out of ultra running event, which is certainly iconic in and of itself and significantly older. First run in 1994 with around 100 entrants. Race caps are near 2,000 now and it fills up immediately. Many call this race the Ironman of off-road mountain bike racing. That term is not always meant as a compliment. It is, however, a very prestigious race at the front, usually a veritable Hall of Fame field of international competitors fighting for those top spots. The race itself is literally 50 miles out and 50 miles back, doubling back upon itself for the entire course of very non-technical trails, dirt roads, paved roads, and a smattering of technical descending. What separates this race, however, is the altitude. Leadville, the race start, is at 10,200 feet, or 3,100 meters, with total elevation gains over the course of 11,000 feet, or 3,400 meters, including that legendary 10-mile climb to Columbine Mine at the turnaround point. The race, of course, has gained all kinds of publicity over the years, especially recently due to the participation of dopers. I mean, world tour road competitors in the years of 2010, 2009, 2008, and 2007. Lots of stars from the MTB world on the start line this year, including two-time winner and defending champ Alban Lakata former world champion Christoph Saucer, current USA National Cycling Mountain Bike Champion Todd Wells, who is also a former winner, and top endurance mountain bike racer Christian Heinick from the European racing scene. On the women's side, defending Leadville champ UK Sally Bingham, who last year absolutely destroyed the course record previously set by Rebecca Rush, was on hand, as well as Nina Baum, and last year's runner-up Allison Powers of the United Healthcare Road Team, and your current U.S. National Road Champion. 
The race started as it always does at 6.30 in the morning, just as the sunrise peaks over the tops of the mountains. A large peloton pushed out of Leadville with speeds of well over 25 miles an hour. But due to the corrals and the lineup for the start, only a select few are close enough to the front to make the selection, even before the first serious climb up St. Kevin's near mile 10. By the top of that first climb, Christian Heineck had pushed a crazy pace that dropped all pretenders, leaving only six in that lead group. Wells, Heineck, Chad Beyer, Christoph Saucer, Alvin Licata, and Max Jenkins. Shortly after that descent, it was just Saucer, Licata, and Wells, with Byers stretching the elastic 30 seconds back. Coming down the iconic power line descent, Christoph Saucer flatted. Byers was gone um, off the back, and then there were just three. Wells, Licata, and Heineck on the front. As a group approached the Twin Lakes aid station just prior to the Columbine, uh, Columbine climb, Lakata flatted. On the climb went Heineck with Wells stuck to his wheel. As the climb moved above tree line, Wells lost touch with Heineck, and Heineck moved on ahead, gaining a two-minute gap by the turnaround point on the top of the mountain. Wells took some risks on the ensuing descent through riders come, climbing to the turnaround, bringing that gap down to just under a minute as they hit the Twin Lakes aid station on the return leg. Heineck had other plans and put down some serious power on the open plateau area straight into a nasty headwind prior to the power line climb return, where the deficit back to Wells was now nearly four minutes. Behind Wells, Saucer had found Lakata, and the two were working together to bring the front two back. After power line, Wells suddenly brought Heineck back quickly, and it was quite apparent that Heineck was cooked. Over the St. Kevin's climb, Wells raced paranoid, um, knowing that the his pursuers in the form of Lakata and Saucer were probably working together into that headwind. As he viewed the Leadville finish in the distance, Wells noted a lone rider closing the gaps quickly in the final miles. At the line, it was specialized Todd Wells for the win in six hours, 16 minutes, with teammate Saucer just 18 seconds down. Topeak Ergon's uh, Christian Heineck was able to regroup for third with his teammate Alvin Lakata able to reel him uh, just in just prior uh, just after the line for fourth and Max Jenkins of Herbalife for fifth place in the women's race as a, an expected big race between defending champ Bingham Bingham Powers and Baum never actually materialized as Powers was out early with multiple flats and some mechanicals. Topeak's Ergon's uh, Bingham was riding strong, moved in among the elite men, reaching the top of the Columbine mine in a top 30 overall and decimated the women's field with a time of seven hours, 23 minutes, nearly 45 minutes up on no tubes elite team, Jennifer Smith and her teammate, Nina Baum, another eight minutes back at the NUE Grizzly 100 out in Big Bear, California. The inaugural year for this race coming on the heels of the High Cascades 100 just weeks ago on the West Coast. This is, is an inaugural race included in the NUE series, and that is a rarity, but perhaps gives light to the expected great course, great race direction, and attendance in its maiden year. It's actually a shorter distance compared to others in the NUE series, coming in at only 100K or 62 miles. At the race, it was mostly unknowns towing the line, with the exception being series leader 
Brenda Simrel taking a chance to visit family in the area and California local and guaranteed appearance by Tinker Juarez. In the men's race, the race got going early with a nearly immediate climb up a short gap pass of approximately six miles. Jason Siegel moved to the front, strung the field out that eliminated all except eight, less than six miles into the race. The survivors included Siegel, Juarez, Jean-Louis Bordever, Greg Gibson, Julian Bordever, Dana Weber, uh, Ben Bostrom, yes, that Ben Bostrom, and Daniel Munoz. On the main 35-kilometer loop, which would be completed twice, Bostrom took on the lead, took over the lead with uh, Juarez, Weber, and Julian Bordever able to eventually reel him in. At the beginning of lap two, Juarez attacked with Bordever following closely through some of the very technical single track that had many riders uh, walking, including our two leaders, had them on their backs at least once, according to several um, spectators. Bostrom was able to pick up the pieces after a bad spell and bridge back up to those leaders coming off the two laps onto the final section that included the Radford climb, a six-mile-long, 2,000-foot monster averaging over 10% with kickers near 15%, much of it um, in the direct sun with no tree cover. As the climb climbed into the heat, and temps approached near 100 degrees, Bostrom was the first to call uncle, with Juarez and Bordever moving ahead. Bordever then slowly built up a gap to Juarez um, through attrition in the heat without any type of attack. The gap at the top was 30 feet, or just mere seconds, which Bordever held on to the scent all the way to the line, winning in 5 hours, 43 seconds, um, for Black Star Racing. Tinker Juarez of Shore Cannondale just six seconds later, and Jason Siegel of Felt, your early instigator in third in five hours and 17 minutes. Ben Bostrom held on to fourth despite some major heat issues, holding off Dana Weber of Stage 21 Cycling for fifth. In the women's division, all eyes were on NUE Series leader Brenda Simrel, taking the opportunity to visit family in California while racing a new event in the area. Simrel came into the race with three wins. Simrel was able to put in a very conservative race, but one that kept her competition at bay, racing in the on the some of the same trails she started racing on over 20 years ago. Simrel did have a chance to see her competition in the race in a little bit of a back-and-forth battle early with Jane Pierbrandt, a cycling coach for uh, CTS. Um, back-and-forth lasted only until the exit of the two middle loops. Simrel was too strong, riding in the heat and holding a decent gap up the Radford climb that she further widened on the following single track and descent to the finish. Brenda Simrel of Motor Mile uh, racing takes the win in six hours, 30 minutes with Jane Rebrandt of CTS eight minutes back for uh, second and Mary Donnelly for third, quite a bit further back in the Masters 50 plus 2011 NUE Masters champ series champion. Doug Andrews made the most of a nearly home turf uh, advantage and winning the, the division over uh, this year's Kohuta champ, Alex Hawkins by just eight minutes. Doug Andrews wins in six hours, 30 minutes with Hawkins second and Robert Mayhem of Cal Giant in third. In a single speed division, Alan Framboise led from the front on trails he frequents. Despite 
um, some mechanical issues in the later parts of the race. He was never really challenged and took advantage of, um, as any good single speeder will, of the fast geared riders around him on the sections where he could. Laframbois admits to racing others around him and really not considering the single speed division until near the finish. Alan Frambois, Laframbois with the 13th fastest time of the day and grabbing the top of the podium of the single speed division for bike for Bender. Um, Andre Campos of NutriShop and uh, Richard Long of the Cycle Smart Grassroots team in a distant second and third finished your single speed men's podium. At the Wilderness 101, one of the original races of the National Ultra Endurance Series this year in its 14th year, though an earlier version ran in the three to four years in the early 90s, um, the current leadership and the current promotion and the, the way it appears now um, has been around for 14th year under the leadership of Chris Scott and his Shenandoah Mountain Touring Group. Iconic race, unbelievable race, and I wish those guys continued success in putting on great races, including this Wilderness 101 and uh, the sister event, the Shenandoah 100. This race takes place in Rothrock State Park, just outside of State College, PA. Rudy, Rocky, technical, rocky, gritty, rocky um, nastiness. And for those who don't ride on that stuff or haven't ridden on that stuff before, it's um, definitely an eye-opening experience. And um, generally, guys who do train on that stuff, those riders from central Pennsylvania um, and even uh, parts of Maryland that, ha- that deal with that stuff on a regular basis and other places around the country, um, those guys always are the ones that have the advantage in, in those kind of races. Very, very technical, and it takes some getting used to. Um, quite a few East Coast studs in attendance this year, and that's not to exclude some of the women, as there were definitely some female studs in attendance, too. Towing the line this year, Keck Baker, Christian Tangi, Jeremiah Bishop, Rob Spring, Jerry Flug, Don Powers, Jim Mayurick, Michael Ramponi, Gordon Wadsworth, Roger Massey, Mark Dragalis, Dan Rapp, Jim Matthews, Todd Ace, Missy Nash, Simona Vinciova. Plenty of talent there this year. Additionally, you always have some guys mixing it up, more guys that are doing the, the traditional XC races that will always target, um, if they're going to do one or two 100 mile races in the mid Atlantic region, it's generally going to be the Wilderness 101 or the Shenandoah 100. So there's always some, uh, underdogs, um, showing up for the events. Um, in the women's race with NUE leader, uh, Brenda Simrel chasing some big bear glory. The field was very unstable, with many hoping to take advantage of her absence. It didn't take long for three to separate themselves from the rest, occasionally riding within seconds of each other and often passing each other in some of those early aid stations. In the end, however, it was Missy Nash, toasted head racing, outlasting them all, winning in nine hours, 27 minutes, 44 seconds, with... Uh, Simona Vinciova of Hammer Nutrition just nine minutes back and Ann Pike of Blue Ridge Cycling a short further eight minutes back. In the men's open race, the race had a bit of a placid beginning waiting for the Patron in the form of Jeremiah Bishop to really start those happenings. In the early opening climbs all done on dirt roads in the first 20 miles, 
Rob Spring decided to move off the front of a larger group that included contenders and pretenders to test the water, so to speak. He was quickly marked by regional Cannondale rider Keck Baker with Jerry Flug following, later also joined by Andy Gorski and Anthony Grinnell. This group worked very well together through aid station number one and up the first rocky technical climb immediately after, where they were soon joined by Wadsworth, Bishop, and Tangy. Uh, you knew those guys were not going to let those front five walk away, and they quickly bridged up. As a group neared aid station number three on a long climb, Tangi attacked with only Baker, Bishop, and Spring following before Spring fell off the pace. Behind, Grinnell chased but was never able to bridge up to any of those up front, and Flug then caught Grinnell and single-speed Wadsworth. Back at the front, Show Air Cannondale's Bishop attacked with 45 miles to go, then set off solo for the win, and the new record for the Wilderness 101 of 6 hours and 50 minutes. Baker was able to ditch Tangi in near the last aid station and roll in for second place, 10 minutes down on Bishop for Cannondale Carrytown Bikes. Tangi in another 6 minutes rolled in for third for uh, your rare disease cycling team and his teammate spring in for fourth jerry flug rounded out your podium in fifth also for rare disease cycling in the single speed division blue ridge cyclery's gordon wadsworth was able to again capitalize on the ability to hang with the open men's leaders until those geared fireworks go off sticking with them well into the into the race 50 to 60 miles and still staying near the front actually riding the final miles into the finish with fifth place open men's podium rider jerry flug winning the race in seven hours 26 minutes wadsworth is on a roll this year in the nue series and a showdown or two depending on the results with aj linnell is absolutely going to happen the those those racing, and we'll talk about more about what's going on in the NUE standings, but um, the, the single-speed division is turning out to be a very exciting, exciting division with one rider, A.J. Linnell, absolutely dominating those um, uh, West Coast events um, and mountain uh, region events, and uh, Gordon Wadsworth dominating the ones on the East Coast. Uh, eventually, Fireworks are going to go off, and we'll actually talk about that as we talk about the NUE standings a little later on in the show. Anyhow, just behind Wadsworth, coming in just 13 minutes later, Don Powers of the Pittsburgh Pro Bikes team was second, and perennial single-speed podium finisher in the NUE series, Daniel Rapp of Toasted Head Racing, was in for third. In the Masters race, it was a dominating win for Toasted Head Racing's Jim Matthews, winning by nearly 30 minutes in 7 hours, 53 minutes. Second place to Michael Ramponi, who nicks Cafe Velo's David Johnson at the line by just 40 seconds. Having just talking about uh, Gordon Wadsworth there with Wilderness 101 and his, I mean, his win again um, and his continuing wins. I mean, he's been absolutely decimating the field. And don't think that he is just targeting the NUE series because he, he is the USA national single speed champion. Additionally, um, I heard about him racing um, some gravel races back in February and March earlier this year against some of my teammates um, and crushing the fields there. So um, he is not a one trick pony at all. He is one heck of a strong rider. He is um, 
one really, really nice guy. And I got a chance to interview him this week. And I, I really like the way this interview came out. We talked about a lot of different things. And it's a really interesting interview, a little bit different than some of the other interview, interviews I've done for on here for the last aid station. But um, I hope you really guys enjoy this. It was a really a pleasure talking to him. He's kind of exploded onto the scene here recently. Uh, we've talked about him a lot this season. Um, kind of, I started noticing him a lot more on the podium um, starting last fall when he pretty much decimated the field at the Shenandoah 100 in the NUE series. Um, that's where he started to get the buzz. That's where he kind of hit my radar. Um, continued this year with a big emphasis on the NUE series, or at least it seems that way, um, stamping his authority across um, a lot of every race, not only in the single speed division, but um, because of his high placings, he's always in the race for the overall win or the fastest time of the day out there. Um, this year he's won, has wins at Kohutta um, in the single speed division, placing second overall just behind Jeremiah Bishop. He's won uh, Lumberjack, third fastest on the day. He's won uh, Wilderness, fifth fastest on the day. Pretty much targeting uh, the NUE series and pretty much, um, with the exception of A.J. Linnell, going to be his only competition in the NUE series, really um, making a big mark and a big move um, for that series title. Um, the other thing that he has done this year, which is kind of remarkable, is you would think, wow, he's really made a big move towards um, the endurance racing. Um, so, in his downtime between races, he goes off to the USA Cycling Traditional Cross-Country National Championships and wins the single-speed division going away. Um, remarkable uh, talent, really making a big impact, especially in single-speed racing on the, uh, in the off-road uh, sector, um, and holding the current national champion in the uh, sanctioned U USA Cycling uh, single-speed division. So... What I'd like everyone to do is welcome Gordon Wadsworth to the Last Aid Station. Thanks, man. Absolutely, Mark. Thank you for having me, man. Yeah. That guy that guy sounds pretty fast. I'm he just he does sound fast. He <laughs> does sound fast. And um, as I, I mentioned to you earlier today, I actually raced you like three or four years ago and beat you. And, right? Um, and I will just continue to just pretend like that still goes on on, on a regular basis. Um, put, put that one on the mantelpiece. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. Um, hey, I'm, I'm so glad to have you on, man. I, we, you know, we talked um, early in the season this year yeah. um, at, I think, Kohada, mm -hmm. and um, I said, man, we're going to have to have you on. I, I, I could just see that that was not a one-off event. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you know, you, you being there um, right to the end until – uh, Jeremiah Bishop, who always seems to dispatch everybody by the end of the race, um, <laughs> he does that. <laughs> yeah, um, but it was a, it was a, it was cool to talk to you there. Um, so, tell me a little bit about yourself. Like, how did you get into this whole endurance thing? Because it's not that this is what you've jumped into. You kind of looking across like different race results. Mm -hmm. You've kind of tried a whole bunch of different things. <laughs> you know. So how, yeah. did, how did you how did you come into endurance mountain bike racing? Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, there's not, there's not a fantastic story there, I, I guess. Uh, there's nothing, uh, there's no, you know, in the desert moment or anything. So I, I, I started racing, uh, locally in, in around Roanoke, Virginia, probably 10 or 11 years ago. Um, I had some family that, that, uh, my sister, my older sister was into, uh, uh, riding and worked at a bike shop when she was in college. And I remember her coming home 
one summer with a with a shiny new road bike, you know, and uh, I think it, uh, I don't remember what brand it was, but I remember seeing that and seeing just the, the lines of the you know, of a road bike and, and, and just being absolutely enamored with that. And I probably zipped around the block, you know, who knows, um, but uh, being really, really stoked on that at a pretty young age. And, and uh, I think she left her mountain bike home one summer, um, you know, I think she was a, did a, a summer abroad or something, and, and, and that mountain bike stayed in there. And I'm, I'm pretty sure I flogged that thing that summer. You know, it was a pretty <laughs> nice bike, and I'm pretty sure I flogged it. <laughs> um, you know, which uh, probably was where I got the bug to to do to start riding, and uh, worked in bike shops, kind of more from an interest than uh, you know, and just the scene and seeing that the, the cool personalities that are in cycling. Um, at that age and then probably, um, you know, ra- raced very casually. Um, what I would assess now is casually then I thought was hardcore. Um, and you know, short cross country mountain bike, um, did beginner sport, <laughs> did, uh, the whole deal finally got up to the expert level and raced locally. Um, I, I remember, um, I remember, I guess in 2006 was when I first had a single speed. Um, and I remember building it because that was the year I started college and was too broke to afford anything else. Um, you know, so I put together this single speed and, and, and was just absolutely thrilled with it. Um, the bike was terrible and it had so many flaws in so many ways, you know, it was slotted dropouts that would slip every time you'd apply just a tiny bit of brake pressure. And it was uh floppy steel frame and it was just terrible. But I remember the, the feeling that it imparted being on that bike and having just that, that mentality of, of, of push the gear, (laughs) you know, and I I love that. Um, so I, I kind of did that in college a little bit. Um, did some road in college, have a particular love of a good, um, really well-rounded crit. Uh, I think that, I think that the crit race is, is a fantastic way to experience cycling because it is like a, it's like a concentrated version you know, I mean, you have so much going on in such a short, relatively short period of time. Um, you know, and I did some of those and had some success uh, as a Cat 3 and 2 uh, now at those. Um, I, you know, I, I think I think my approach at, at last year and the year before was try exactly what you said. Try a bunch of different things and see what I like, see what sticks. I did um, through the Batten Kill last year. I did... Um, uh, you know, XC nationals, I did some six hours. I mean, I, I did, I did some cross last year. I mean, I just kind of tried it all. Um, and I think, uh, I, you know, over the several year period, I did that and then condensed it all last year and did it all last year and, and sort of came away from that with, um, uh, you know, what, what of that did I really dig? Um, and it ended up being, uh, my experience at the Shenandoah mountain 100, probably, uh, four years ago was the first time I did that, I think. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I think I had a, uh, my goal was a, a 10 hour and I think I was under that, but really close. Um, I did it on a single speed. Um, I raced at that time I raced for, uh, the, what was the Gary Fisher two niner crew and then was the Trek two niner crew. Um, and, and that was, in many ways, that was a really good way for me to cut my teeth racing because the 2-9er crew was kind of, you could make it what you wanted. You know, we had guys like Roger Massey um, who are fantastic ambassadors and fantastic um, 
uh, role models. I mean, if, if I could be Roger Massey at any phase of life, I'd be I'd be doing good. I think he's a great guy. Um, and then you had guys like Tom Parsons was on the Tunana crew for a while as well, who are these sort of sort of rowdy, you know, dudes that they, they, they get out there and, and, and make it their own. Um, and I think the Tunana crew was good for me because it, it was it was what you wanted it to be. Um, and the support was pretty decent at the time from Fisher and then with Treg. Um, you know, so I did my first Shenandoah, uh, 100, 2010 with the Tunana crew and, and was like completely decimated after I finished it and was like completely, what is this all day thing? How do people do this? This is unreal. Um, you know, and, and then I said, I if I ever do this again, it will be at least two years. And I came back two years later, um, which would have been last year's, I guess. Um, at the time, it would have been two full years, actually, so three years later. Um, I, I did it, and uh, I was third that year. Um, that would be two years ago then. I was third. Um, Pat Blair won it that year. And and it was like, I remember, I remember very vividly riding up. And seeing Matt Ferrari's freeze thaw bikes kit, and saying, "Oh my gosh, that's Matt Ferrari!" Like I, I, I've read his name, <laughs> you know, yeah. and being like, "Wow, like this is this is fantastic." Um, and then so we rode together, and I, and I rode with Matt, and we just shot the breeze, and it was it was fantastic. Um, being in that position and soaking that up, um, and I remember when we passed Jerry Flug because that was a year that he had pretty much wrapped up the series. Um, and, and decided that he, he would pull out because Fool's Gold that year was like the next weekend or something really tight. Um, and we passed Jerry and it was like, oh my gosh, that's Jerry Fluke. You know, it was like a teenage girl, um, of the single speed world, (laughs) um, you know, and, and so that I think cemented to me, uh, a, a lot of really good emotions and really good things about, about endurance racing. And I went on, you know, I, 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 in that race, I caught up to Ron Harding um, and that was the year that it poured with rain the whole time, um, and all the day before, night before. And I caught up to Ron Harding at the top of the death climb and, uh, passed him going to the single track. And then I had just zero breaks from grinding in that Shenandoah dirt all day. And, and he got past me. Um, I ended up getting really close to him again at the finish, but Pat Blair just smoked it that year. So, uh, we were both, uh, you know, on lower steps than him, um, and so I said, you know, that was so good. This is last year. I said, that was so good. I, I got to do that again. Um, and uh, I won it last year. Had a, a pretty, pretty fantastic ride last year in some marginal weather. Um, again, rode with Matt Ferrari, paced with him really nicely for most of it. And standing on the top step of that podium um, was like the coolest thing um, in so many ways, you know more than just having won a race, but having, having won that, having won the day, if you will, you know what I mean? Um, because you do, you spend all day out there and, and you, you, you go through all the highs and lows physically and emotionally and mentally. And, and I think that, um, when you come out of an effort, like an NUE race or a hundred mile or, or a six hour, I mean, it's different, all kinds of races, you know, you, you've, you've done more than just raced your bike for the day. You know, you've, you've really made a journey and that, and that, that stuck. And so after that result last year, um, I sort of circled the wagons and took a little bit of time off and said, you know, which of these things I did 
Uh, did I really enjoy it? Did I enjoy the road? Did I enjoy the crits or cross? And I came back to that Shenandoah win and said, you know, that had to be, um, and I had a, I had a podium finish at nationals last year too. And, um, uh, again, nipped at the line by Ron Harding, <laughs> um, you know, uh, Seamus Powell won single speed that year in just what has got to be the biggest show of dominance I've ever seen. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, last year, I, you know, coming back to that Shenandoah moment and, and, and sort of reliving that, I said, that is what I, what I want to do next year, you know? And, um, so I put in a lot of time over the winter, um, and, and have had a really blessed, awesome year so far. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you mentioned the Shenandoah 100. A lot of people seem to use that as their benchmark. Um, sure. It's one of the original uh, races in the NUE series. Um, it, it's been around a lot longer than the NUE series. Um, so, do you, do you think that? I mean, do you think do you think it, it deserves that respect? I mean, because a lot of people use that as their benchmark, regardless of how they do in the rest of the season. Sure. They you know they come back to Shenandoah. I need to beat this time, or I want to place higher, or uh, you know whatever their personal best. And, that, and that's whether they're competing for the series title or whether they're just coming back to try to improve themselves. Do you, do you agree with that? I mean, I, I think Shenandoah, I mean, from everything I've heard, I've never done the race, but from everything I've read, everything I've heard, that is by far the most complete of the um, ultra-endurance 100-mile races in the country. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would, I, I was gonna, I was gonna absolutely say just that, that I yeah. think it's the best rounded of all of them that, you know, that I've done. Yeah. Um, I think that, that th- what has surprised me about the ones that I've done is that there is significant variation from race to race, um, pretty profoundly, but Shenandoah, yeah, it, it has absolutely, well, it has a fantastic venue, um, in the form of Stokesville Lodge. Um, it has fantastic promotion and support from Chris Scott and Shando Mountain Touring. It has, um, I think, by a long shot, the best volunteers. I don't know if he, like, pit crew trains these people all summer long or what, but when you pull into a Shando aid station, it's like, it's like, um, I don't know. It's like it's like a hotel. I mean, you pull in and people are like, "What do you need? What can I do for you? You know what? What's going on? Is your bike okay?" And it and it's it's really remarkable to get that experience at, at every single aid station. Um, so I think yeah, you know, Shenandoah brings very much the full package, um, and that's part of the reason it is as big as it is. Um, it, it for me, uh, like I said, I think if 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 you have done another another hundred mile race. Um, I think Shenandoah even then will still push you in ways that that one probably did not because it has, it has tremendous climbing. It has great pacey road sections. Um, it has fantastic technical single track, um, you know, on Lynn, uh, the first for sort of technical climb. Um, it has, uh, what I think is probably some of the best descending, um, that I've ever ridden. <laughs> yeah. I remember the first time I did Shenandoah, I remember doing, I think it was, um, I think it was Hanky. The, the first time you come up Hanky and you come down, um, I don't remember if it was Hanky or Braley's, but it was one of those two descents. I remember thinking, this is like blissful, you know? This yeah. is this incredible descending ribbon of, of single track that is just blissful. If this could go on forever, I would buy it. You know, I mean, I, I would, I would do whatever I had you to get it. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, unfortunately it doesn't. And you drop into the aid station and realize you're only 40 miles in, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that's life. <laughs> yeah. Um, you mentioned all the, the, 
I mean, you've had a very obvious progression um, right. coming, you know, from, you know, 10 hours to, you know, eight and a half, eight or whatever, um, right. top three to winning it last year. Um, and then this year, you know, doing remarkably well, um, you and AJ Linnell pretty much on opposite ends of the country, pretty much dominating the NUE series. Um, yeah. So what has changed? What has made you, what, you know what I mean? Like, was there a point at which you've changed specific training, um, which is, you know, possible or have you taken it more seriously or are you doing more stuff in the off season? I mean, what obviously stuff has changed. So what, what has it been? You know, um, that's a really good question. And I think that, I think that I could, I could answer that a couple of different ways. Um, but I, I'll tell you, um, the, the, the overarching goal coming into this season, knowing that several NUE races were on the calendar and an NUE run was definitely, uh, um, the, the focal point. Um, and so what I made my goal was to try and to try to come into it a, a very complete, though endurance focused athlete, you know, so I spent, um, a fair bit of time, um, in, you know, in the gym, you know, home gym, you know, in the basement doing, doing a lot of, strength work and plyometrics and real and a lot of stability work because um single speeding especially but i mean any sort of um repetitive motion and you know like cycling is can can tend to um really tax a system that isn't uh, really well balanced you know and so that was i think that was my approach all winter long was to come into the spring and the summer very well balanced um i think that has has maintained very nicely. Um, it hasn't really decayed much, which is fantastic. But and and, and that went for in the gym in terms of core and and strength and stability, but also as an athlete. So in in the winter, um, I had a fantastic training partner in the form of Darren Cox, uh, an ex-Terra athlete, um, and he and I were out in single-digit weather. I mean, several times a month, where where we you know in Roanoke, Virginia. Um, and I mean, it snow and just, it was, it was a really horrible winter to be outside. Um, but we, we made sure that we went long, we went short, we did, um, we tried to train at a variety of different paces. And I think that that, uh, again, is indicative of trying to come into the season very rounded and very stable, um, and very sound as, as a rider. Um, and I think that, that, uh, you know, in terms of specificity, uh, in terms of specific types of training, knowing that I wanted to do a single speed run. Um, obviously I spent a lot of time on a single speed. (laughs) Um, uh, I, I spent, um, I think more than anything, I spent more time on the mountain bike this year. Um, in prior years, I had spent more time on, on the road because, you know, you can, you can go out front door and get miles. Same reason most people spend a lot right. of time on the road. Yeah. Um, but I made a significant effort to, to ride out to single track more often, to ride more single track more often, to put together unique loops that would keep me interested. Um, you know, I think that that, uh, that again was indicative of trying to come into the season very well rounded technically, um, have my handling game pretty well down. Um, you know, so I think that's, that was the mantra over the winter, you know, was try and come into it very sound and very, um, on top of everything. Uh, you know, so that I, I, I did a little, um, 
I did a little bit of geared um, riding on the mountain bike over the winter. I have a, a Superfly, Trek Superfly with a 1x11 group set, and, and I found that that is, a lot of people have found that that is a, a very appealing group set, especially coming from single speed or coming from the fully geared, you know, triple or double direction because it simplifies, um, but gives you options. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, and so I use some of that for, for some particularly long, uh, mountain bike rides with a lot of road sections. But, um, in general, I spent a ton of time on my single speed. Um, I spent a lot of time in the, in the, you know, the home gym, um, sweating. So I, I think that would be my approach. You know, it was a very rounded, um, whole athlete sort of approach to the, to the, the season. And so far so good. <laughs> cool. Um, do you now at, in your specific training, um, do you, do you, do you kind of go by feel or, you know, do you, are you a guy that likes, likes to plan out his workouts well in advance or, you know, do you use a power meter? Do you use heart rate monitor? I mean, what, what do you generally use? Um, yeah, so, so I, I have used power. I have used heart rate. You can probably tell them by my tone that I'm not stoked on either. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think they have tremendous application, and I think they are tremendously valuable to um, be aware of and to know your capacity within um, that, especially as it relates to heart rate, because it, it can give you so many fantastic clues about where you are in in your uh, development through a peak. You know, so if you you, you, if you if you pay attention to your heart rate, it will tell you a lot. It'll tell you when you need to recover, how you need to recover, um, what your limitations are for that day. It can tell you a lot. Um, and so I have done that. And so I have a, a context of those things. Um, but I find that that is all a lot of junk sometimes. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and I think that for me to come into it with uh, – to come into racing single speed, having been on a power meter all winter, I think I would deserve my own – my own blog from Rich Dillon about how ridiculous that is. <laughs> you know, I, th- I feel like that would that would deserve some ire and anger. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean and I talked to um, Josh Testato a couple, uh, the interview a couple right. podcasts ago, and, you know, he doesn't use any of that stuff either. Um, yeah. But, the, you know, one of the differences is that he lives in a very mountainous region like you do. He lives at altitude um, right. also. So it's very easy for him, I mean, to go out and, ride a climb that's going to take hour and a half, two hours. And so, you know, you're putting out versus, you know, living in a flatter part of the country right. um, where you may not have that. And so you need some type of motivation versus just getting to the top of a eight or 10% climb. that's going to take you an hour to do. <laughs> yeah. So I understand both sides of the, of the argument, certainly. Um, and it's, I mean, and as far as single speed racing, it really doesn't matter what your power is. You're, right. you're either going to turn the pedals over, or you're going to walk. So your your yeah. power is either there or not. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I say. Yeah. So uh, it's just interesting to see um, where guys are. So at this point, are you mostly just riding your single speed? I you know I was worried that I would not be I would be so over it, but I am so stoked on it. Um, I think it I think it is such a fantastic way to ride. I I got a. Uh, Raleigh single speed belt drive cross bike that I'm going to race some this year. Um, and, and, and that, and, and the, the stoke carried over onto that and I've been riding it on the road and just been like enamored with this. And, and, and to me it's that, um, you know, the simplicity is fantastic. That's, that's a perk to me. The, the, 
cleanliness of the, the design and the lightweight is is super. I mean, these are these are really fun things to me. But to me, the single speed allure is in that moment of in, I don't know if moment of inertia is the right word, but it's in that moment where your gear is perfect. You know, whether it be the bottom of a little whoop de doo or 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 um, you know some section where your speed is just right to clean something technical that you've never cleaned, and you can get on that gear and it is just spot on perfect. Um, and that is absolutely what what I love about single speeding. Because um, when you get it right, it is like so smooth and so clean and so efficient. Um, you know, and and that that uh, has so far carried over onto the this cross bike that I'm riding. Um, yeah, so it it is a uh, it's fantastic. So what do you think, single speed cross country worlds or cyclocross worlds? Yeah, Louisville, right? Yeah. I guess that's, yeah, yeah, that's that's the plan, dude. Yeah. That bike is uh, <laughs> bike is going. Um, <laughs> Hopefully, hopefully, I'll find a way to transition seven-hour power into yeah, to, uh, sixty-minute power. Hour, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, I'll do like I did with nationals. I'll start my warm-up two hours in advance, and yeah. we should be good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, tr- going from training to racing, uh, yeah. how do you? What is what's your strategy for racing? I mean, now that you've, it was probably different for what you did at Kohuta. Yeah. Um, than what you do now, because uh, you've gotten the experience of knowing. I mean, I imagine going into that first race, you're like, okay, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to hang with these front guys on a speed <laughs> or whatever. And, and especially going back to Shenandoah last year, where you had some yeah. World Tour Pro road riders showing up to race <laughs> the uh, event. So, yeah. but what, like, what, what's your strategy now? Do you try to purposely stay at the front no matter what, or is there a point at which you're like, this is stupid? Um, I think, I think if I were honest, the, the point at which it's stupid is probably on the start line, um, on a single speed, you know, I think, I think there's an element of that. Um, you're, you're exactly right in that going into Kahada and and I've, I've gone into almost all of these races completely blind. Um, you know, with, with all the beta from everyone I could gather, but no, or very minimal, um, on-site riding, um, and Kohara was probably one of the hardest ones to go into that because of the because of the topography where you have um, an out and back is is nice so you you've covered some of the same terrain um, but it's all fire road you, you know and I had no way of knowing what what the the that crux climb that you, the, the potato patch and the way back is like especially with a name like that how could it be hard right, right. Um, but uh, yeah yeah going into Kohara absolutely the goal was stick Jerry Flug's wheel and he was on single for that. Um, because in, in, in the endurance world, certainly the single speed world, certainly, um, Jerry is like this, this mountain, you know, I mean, he's like, he's absolutely a legend in his own time. Um, and, and and to be someone who had the goal of winning, uh, the NUE on a single speed, uh, in a single speed series, uh, to see him on the start line, it's like, well, there, there's your, there's your target right there, you know, and that, that was clear and that was good in some ways. Um, but, uh, Kahara was a very different approach, um, because I had him on single to sort of look to, um, we ended up separating at the bottom of potato patch when, uh, you know, I, I, I sort of thought that the wristband station was the aid station and then I realized how quickly I was able to put in a little gap um, and said, well, we got to capitalize on that action. Um, and, and I did uh, manage to. So um, 
you, you know, the rest of them, though, that that sort of mindset going into them or the goal going into them has, has, has varied. Um, you know, with Mohican was the next one that I did. The, the same goal stood because Jerry was on gears and I knew that I could pace with him fairly well for a long period of time. Um, and so I did. You know, I, Jerry and I rode more or less together um, for the first 45 or 50 or so and then things went south for me from there yeah. <laughs> um, pretty precipitously um i guess they went east when i should have gone west right maybe south yeah. not the right it wasn't but a fitness anyhow. issue it was a uh, it was not a fitness yeah. issue. I, I won the 100k yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was fantastic <laughs> i got in their way before they thought i would um me too apparently um but you know lumberjack um I, I was prepared. Lumberjack was nice because the lap system they use up there where it's three thirty three mile laps meant that I would be able to go into that um, without any pre-ride and could still potentially do some good damage, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, I was able to see the same things everybody else had seen. Yeah. Um, and so it, there, I, I uh, that start is so flat and so long that a single speeder is very handicapped. Um, so I probably went into the woods top 15, um, and stayed in the lead group and the front group as it just continued to, to winnow people out. You know, it just kept dropping people off the back. And, and I, I kind of sat in there, um, because we knew Jordan Wakeley and Christian were up front and nobody was giving us really reliable gaps. People would give us like 15 minute gap or five minute gap. And it was like, well, if it's five, we can do that. If it's 15, you know, maybe not. Um, so I just sort of sat at the, the, the back of that front group, you know, honestly, by sort of relegation, I, I kept people would continue to pass me. And it was like, you know, I understand I'm on a bike with one gear, but um, you chased up to me. So, <laughs> you know, you guys caught up to this, this group. And, and now you want to pass me like, that, you know, so that was a little frustrating. But I stayed with that group until it was just Jerry, Jan, Rubel and myself. Um, and that was fun to watch. Fantastic to watch those two. Um but I, you know, I, I sort of attacked aggressively at some point and realized that I could, I could get some distance on them. And then, um, wilderness, I would say was the first one that I've gone into it, uh, fully. Well, actually it wasn't an NUE, but Patapsco, I would say was the first one that I said, Patapsco 100, that I said, go for it from the gun, you know, try, even though you're on single, try and win that. Um, and I was fortunate to, to win that one on single, um, overall, um, you know, and Pat Blair was another one that it was like, well, Pat's there and he's a local and he's on gears. So uh, maybe I'll just pin his wheel for a while. But it, it, on the third lap, it was like, well, here's, here's it. Go for it. You know, don't sit in. Um, Wilderness, I would say was the first one that I, um, I, I saw Jeremiah and Christian and Keck Baker, who I know he's from Richmond, um, and Rob Spring and Jerry and a couple other guys and said, you know, this is one that you can just stick to the, the front wheels, you know, and it was Jeremiah and Christian and, and Keck at varying times. Um, but I continued to stick to that group until about mile 50 when I went down pretty hard. Um, and Rob Spring came around me and, and uh, I, I, you know, that may ha I may have ended up in fifth period, <laughs> but I, I proceeded to just, uh, ride my own pace back in after a pretty hard fall. So, um, that one though, I did, I did very much go into it saying goal number one, you know, if I can't win this, which, you know, 
I won't say can't, but Jeremiah and Christian and Keck were there. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but it was, it was go into it and try to, um, to, if for no other reason than to see how that effort felt and how that effort panned out, because I would, I would love to win an NUE overall, um, on single. I think that that's like the coolest accomplishment in the world. Right. Um, you know, so that, that is, that is developing and progressing. So it's, it's mostly, it's mostly through your experience then I would gather, um, and learning where you kind of fit into where everybody's at and what, not, yeah. that, not that a, not that a single speed brings a handicap, but <laughs> I mean, it, it's kind of a self-imposed <laughs> handicap. Sure. I mean, sure. Yeah. We do. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. Big time. <laughs> um, so, uh, um, let's talk a few things since we kind of got into it a little bit there. Um, you've had a couple issues with, um, <laughs> off course riding this year. Um, either you directly or by riders around you. Um, sure. you were riding with, um, Jerry, Jerry was relatively close to you at Cut Hutta and he ended up riding off course. Um, you yourself rode off course at Mohican. Um, yeah. You've seen it happening at a lot of different venues. Now, with that happening, do you think that's just a part of the sport or do hmm. you think that's something that, that maybe shouldn't be a part of the sport, but unfortunately, um, just the bugs haven't been worked out. What do you think? You know, that, that's a question that I've, um, I've kind of asked myself a little bit because I think a lot of people would be really, really bitter about what happened at Mohican, which to me was, was effectively that, um, as I saw it, there was minimal or, I mean, I saw no course marking indicating the, the left turn to do the hundred K. And, um, I, I, you know, I get to the eight, to the eight station 12 miles later. And she says, the, the woman at the aid station says, Oh, well, you wouldn't believe how many people do that. And I'm thinking, no, I, I would believe, <laughs> um, very easily, you know? So I, I think that that's a really good question to ask. And the fact that, um, you know, the, the, the facts are that it, it's a hundred miles. Um, it's tremendously difficult, I'm sure to, to account for however many hundreds of different riders, different views of each turn, each corner. Um, I think that that's, you know, you can't, you can't please everybody and people are going to go off course, no matter how much caution tape you wrap them in. Um, and you're, and you're never going to get rid of, I mean, as the sports gets bigger, as this makes more of an impact, as this has more, um, press coverage or whatever, um, yeah. you're also going to have more chances for people to purposely sabotage. And I've talked about that before <laughs> Yeah, and, and it sucks, but unfortunately people do it. Um, yeah. and, and there's nothing you can do to stop that. Um, you know, and I've had Ryan Odell from the NUE on and talked about this. Um, yeah. and right now there's, you know, the best they can do is do the best they can. Um, but my idea is that why not give out a GPS course for that? at least have it available um, so that you could put it into your GPS device ahead of time. Now, I understand there's the chance, you know, race day or the night before the race, there's going to be a chance that they're going to change the course. Right. But, I mean, there's, you know, and I understand, you know, there's situations like Mohican where they had to change the start due to poaching and other things that were going on there, um, and they don't want to release the course. But um, I think there's something, I, I, to me personally, I think this isn't, this isn't bikepacking. This isn't adventure racing. I think if you're going to have a course, uh, everything needs to be done to make sure that people don't lose a race because they're ridden off course. Um, yeah. I, 
I'll, I'll go in on that. Um, count me, count me for that too. <laughs> you know, and I honestly hadn't thought about it that way because a lot of people view um, hundred mile races, NUE or not, as, as this epic adventure, right? right? And so, to some people, part of the epic adventure may may include an element of that. To me, it does not. Um, and because I, I would, I would go with you and say the exact same thing. If you, if you want that, go, go do bike packing, go do, um, exactly adventure racing or, or whatever right. bizarre offshoot there is this month. Um, I, I don't have a problem with people saying it's, it's this big epic adventure, but then if that's, yeah. if it's the big epic adventure, then, then the idea is that you give me a cue sheet, you have to give me a map <laughs> to follow, which yeah. most don't. And so, you know, I guess it's just a different viewpoint, different way of looking at it. But I think that the series and um, 100 Mile Racing has evolved enough now that it's not this underground sport anymore. It's not. Yeah. I mean, it's probably one of the gro- biggest growing segments in mountain biking, um, if not cycling, yeah. um, outside of cyclocross and uh, maybe gravel racing or something like that. But, I mean, I think it really it, – it should be something that um, – that promoters or whoever um, make every effort to make it a fair and equitable thing um, where the course yeah. is well marked or everybody has um, having, having been to the race doesn't impact in the past doesn't impact on you being able to follow the course this year. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely go in on that though and, and say, um, say, you know, Jeep, whether it's GPS files um, because some of them are accurate enough that that's, that's a fantastic option. Um, or, or whether that's talking to people like, like Chris Scott, who I think get it super right. Um, you know, Shenandoah mountain touring, because I went up to wilderness having never ridden any of that and was alone for 50 miles of it and had no problems. Um, Whereas, I mean, I've stopped in the middle of other races and said, okay, <laughs> you know, and, and, and waited for somebody almost uh, to, to, to help me along here, you know? Right. Um, and, and I think that, I think that that's, uh, that's too bad, you know? So, you I know. mean, and I'm not saying that GPS, I mean, is the end all be all. Um, it's an most, option. But most people ride with them and um, it uh, may, it may not keep you from riding off course a little bit. Um, but I think it would make a difference in making sure you don't ride 12 miles to the next aid station <laughs> before you realize. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so who are your sponsors this year? So, so I race for, um, Blue Ridge Cyclery, uh, presented by Reynolds GM Subaru out of, uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, and that has a pretty cool history. Sean Tevendale, the owner, uh, raced for um, Trek World Racing when I was racing for the Gary Fisher 2-9er crew. We got to know each other. Um, and then when, when those programs got canned because it was an Olympic year, um, I mean, literally 30 minutes after the phone call came that the 2-9er crew was not going to be a thing, Sean Tevendale calls me up and says, hey, I'm opening a shop. And, uh, you know, if you want to be on the team, I want you on the team. And that year we had, um, I think three of the five USAC pros in Virginia were on the Blue Ridge Cycling team. Um, you know, so Sean has a tremendous dedication, dedication to racing and to the sport, um, in all its sometimes crazy iterations, um, you know, into development of athletes. Uh, I've ridden for them now for three years and Sean has been, fantastic the the team at blue ridge cyclery i mean the team is in the, the the folks that work there and the community that that surround it um 
have been fantastic. I've been really stoked to be on a pivot uh, less this year. Um, after a long time on Trek, you know, Fisher products, um, I got onto that pivot and was floored by it. And that's, of course, not to say that Trek doesn't do some fantastic bikes, but um, Pivot nailed it <laughs> with that bike. Um, absolutely nailed it. Um, you know, so I, I, I've been uh, really stoked to ride for both of them. I, I'll be on a rally cross bike this year, um, which is another departure for me. But, uh, again, I'm, I'm thrilled with it so far. Cool. Um, so what are your plans for the uh, rest of the season? Um, um, NUE... Stage racing, cyclocross, gravel racing. What do what do you think? All of the above. Yeah. Um, I, I'm I'm actually getting married on August 10th, so that is the next. If somebody were to say at the end of the race, "What's next for you?" which they all do, you know, and everybody says that, then it would be that. That's a huge, uh, exciting moment for me. Um, we talked about putting a podium uh, in the in the wedding. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. So we would both, you know, it's yeah. like the the big one. <laughs> um, Yes, I, uh, the NUE schedule, um, will feature three more races for me. Um, one of those will be Shenandoah. One of those will be Fool's Gold. Um, the other is Undecided and that will be the soonest one. So that, that is kind of, uh, you know, as much as, as much as, um, single speeders may avoid tactics and and that element and points and that element of racing it is it is what it is and so i'm um on the fence now about whether i'll go out and do pierre's hole or whether i'll go up and do hampshire okay um 100 it is uh we'll just have to wait and see yeah. <laughs> we'll leave some excitement there but um have you called, so for the, have you called aj to figure out where he's going <laughs> no, not yet. Wouldn't it be great if I went out there and he came over here? Yeah, yeah. That'd be a hoot. Because I think he's done Hampshire before. Uh, okay. That would be a hoot. Um, but, uh, and then uh, two days after Fool's Gold, I'm doing uh, the Pisgah Stage Race. Um, I've worked and work now with Starlight Custom Apparel um, out of Roanoke, Virginia. And, and we're sending me and probably Charlie Snyder from Richmond down to do that race as a duo um and as much as i can recover in two days from fool's gold right um we're gonna try and bring some hurt uh to the enduro segment to the uh you know to that style of racing that's going to be a feature this year at pisgah to the overall when we can and certainly to the duo male race um after that there's some like like we said single speed cyclocross world championship um which, you know, is, is so cool to me that people can seriously race single speeds or they can uh, stand around and drink beer and race single speeds in air quotes. Right. You know, I mean, they, and that's that's something I look to really enjoy in the latter half of this season um, when the when the, the NUE season is, is concluded for me. Um, it could hold LaRuda. Um is on on the schedule. If that if that is an outcome of the NUE, then I will be there with bells on. That's a race that I have, for some reason, always wanted to do. Um, uh, so I'm thrilled at that prospect too. Well, very cool. Um, <laughs> so, when, when do you think you'll end your season eventually? I mean, do you think it's uh, like LaRuda probably be the latest one I'm thinking off of the November. Week. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's going to require some significant tweaking to any kind of fitness that does exist. Um, yeah. after that, you know, 
we'll, we'll see. Um, I, I, I don't know if I would race single or geared down there because I wouldn't be opposed to riding geared. Um, I'm, I may, I mean, they do have a single speed category this year, which is the first year. Um, but we'll see. That's <laughs> just, you know, one of those things. Right. But yeah, I mean, that would probably be it. Single speed cyclocross worlds is in like September. It's real early. Um, so, you know, I'll probably make LaRuta the last, the last hurrah for this season and then I'll, you know, hibernate or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, Gordon, thank you very much for coming on. Um, best wishes for the rest of the season and certainly, um, Best wishes and, and good luck for your engagement and your upcoming wedding. Thank um, you. Uh, you're a class act, man. Um, <laughs> you've been uh, kind of uh, humbly working your way through the uh, NUE single speed uh, division this year. Um, always there at the front. And uh, I am sure that we will be following you here on the last aid station. And I'm sure I will be reporting on you quite a bit in the upcoming races. So thank you very much, man. Mark, thank you, man. The show's been great. It's been remarkable to be on, and I'm glad you asked me. We'll uh, we'll keep tuning in. Cool. Thank you very much, man. And so there you have it. Um, complete Terminator on the bike, but probably one of the nicest guys you'll meet in the sport. Um, I have never seen him at an event where after the race he doesn't have a grin from ear to ear. Um, absolutely crushes it uh, when he's on the bike, though. Um, it's a really cool perspective to actually – you know, sit around and chat with him. And, um, he's really approachable. If you ever get a chance to see him in a race, very easy guy to get up and chat up and talk to just about anything. Really nice guy. Um, that interview was conducted right before he got married. He is now married. Um, so big props to, uh, Gordon and Emily on their recent wedding. And, um, I hope you guys enjoyed listening to that interview as much as I did. Um, talking to him. So, um, and now back to the results at the off-road assault on Mount Mitchell weekend. This weekend inclu- uh, included a race on Saturday and a race on Sunday. The traditional race held on Sunday, which is the O-Ram or the off-road assault on Mount Mitchell. A second race has been added in recent years called the Jordan Mountain Challenge, which takes place on Saturday. It's a much shorter version of the race. However, not any less competitive and certainly not that much less difficult. Um, definitely includes quite a considerable amount of climbing, still includes a lot of sections of technical downhills. Um, and then in addition to that, um, a separate category was added by the promoters for the combined times of both days into a type of shortened stage race or um, they what they call the king of the mountain competition um, for those who uh, race both days um, as additional prizes. Um, This race is always a who's who of southeastern mountain bike racing and usually a great collision of top road racers versus top XC racers versus top ultra endurance racers. Simply due to the makeup of the course consists of a fair amount of road and gravel sections mixed with technical downhills and a smattering of rocky, rooty hike a bike sections. Um, so, uh, the first race on Saturday is the Jordan mountain challenge. It actually, um, comprises of a section of the course of the O-Ram course run, um, in the opposite direction. And then in, it meets up with the final loop of the O-Ram course, which climbs up over Kitsuma, uh, mountain and descends down back down into the finish line. So the Jordan mountain challenge was certainly there, um, to see who was going to 
um, have the form, um, but it also may have um, handicapped some of the racers who were racing both days. Um, but it certainly showed the form of Brian Schwarm, who absolutely decimated the field by first splitting the front um, on the initial big climb called Jared Creek before moving up the trail with only Matt Williams being able to hold his wheel by the top of star gap and onto the final switchbacks prior to lower heartbreak, a very technical downhill swarm um, had gone sprinting up those tight switchbacks and putting in more distance at the top. More than a minute separated the two, and Schwarm showed that he had no equal on the climbs, putting in another two minutes by the top of Kitsuma to Williams, who would show his abilities on the downhills by winning the Enduro sec- sector category on a segment between Star Gap to Lower Heartbreak. Behind these two, a small battle started from a large group that quickly came down to Seth Cooley, Ian Baldwin, J.C. Dobbs, Eric Georgema, uh, Alex Hamill, Aaron Hogue, William McCracken, Tab Tullet, uh, Nick Erland, and Chris St. Peter, all arriving within two minutes of each other at the top of Star Gap. As that large group slowly lost members and began the final gravel road climb up Mill Creek that eventually continues onto the legendary Kitsuma climb and its famous steep, tight switchbacks. Uh, by the time they got to the top of those tight tight and steep switchbacks. The group was down to just two, with Baldwin having a small advantage over Cooley as they crested the climb and began the long descent that definitely includes some very high-speed technical portions. Cooley risked it more than a few times, bringing back Baldwin as the two exited onto the mostly downhill gradual paved section to the finish line. Back up front, Schwarm, despite Williams' downhill skills and risk-taking, held him off for the win with Williams finishing just three minutes down. Nearly 13 minutes behind Schwarm, Baldwin uh, takes the third fastest overall time, out-sprinting Cooley. Baldwin wins the Masters in two hours, nine minutes, with Cooley slotting in for third in the open men. Your men's open podium, pedal powers Brian Schwarm in one hour, 53 minutes, 59 seconds. Matt Williams of Epic Brewing and uh, MTB Race News in second. And Tech Velo Sports Rider Seth Cooley in third. Eric Georgema in fourth. And Cooley's Velo Sports teammate James Dobbs in fifth. In the Jordan Mountain women's race, a three-up battle of the top women quickly established itself. Um, in amongst the men's field with Jennifer Moose pushing the pace early on the initial big climb up Jarrett Creek with Nina Otter and Jordan Salmon trying to keep her close enough to not to let get, get the gap get out of control before those initial descents. Otter used a steady pacing strategy to eventually reel in Moose before the single track climb up to the lower heartbreak descent. Otter then used her excellent bike handling skills that earned her the Enduro Award of the Day also to put in a much larger gap before merging onto the short paved section prior to the Mill Creek climb. Over the Mill Creek and Kitsuma climb, Otter continued to hold that fast but steady tempo before again using her descending skills to further put time into all others on the Kitsuma downhill. At the line, it was Nina Otter of Liberty Bicycles Warren Wilson College slotting into the top 10 overall and winning, winning your open women's race in two hours, 17 minutes, over 11 minutes faster than runner-up Jennifer Moose of Pink Siren Sports, who holds off a charging third place, the Hub's 
uh, Jordan Salmon by just one minute. Elizabeth Glass and Allison Jones completed your women's podium. In the single speed division for the Jordan Mountain Challenge, Nick Erland uh, stuck to the top riders most of the day, losing just a little time in the high speed paved downhill run into the finish, but winning the single speed division Two hours, 15 minutes, 57 seconds with Kevin Brom and Joe Warsham completing your podium. In the tightest race of the day, Ian Baldwin wins the Masters in 209 with a hard-charging Alex Harrell just 35 seconds down at the line and her Aaron Hogue just another two minutes down for third. On Sunday... The off-road assault on Mount Mitchell, their traditional Sunday morning start. Um, the course set up uh, on the days prior was setting up really nicely, due on the especially on the dirt portions. The course, which is just over 60 miles in length and includes a little over 11,000 feet of climbing, definitely favors the climbers that can push the pace on climbs that are 45 minutes to 90 minutes in length. The race also includes true trips over the Kitsuma climb, approached from different roads each time, as well as lower heartbreak to star gap climb, and the penultimate climb, the gravel road Curtis Creek, gaining 3,000 feet over just 11 miles uh, before exiting onto the Blue Ridge Parkway, then continuing upward for another 500 feet over the next paved three to four miles. Those downhills need to be mentioned here. Many are very steep and technical, where big speeds and time can be lost or gained. At the start, dark clouds loomed over the race course, threatening rain that actually never materialized. The Overcast conditions kept the weather forecasted temps from an expected nearly 95 degrees to a much more reasonable and race-friendly uh, temperatures in the low to mid-80s. With some of the top placers and podium winners having raced the Jordan Mountain Challenge the day before the full 100K distance of the O-Ram, many uh questioned whether some of their great performances would affect their rides on Sunday, as well as show their hands as to the forms, uh, the form that was needed to win the races. Some of these top finishers, as well as top names towing the line for the start of the off-road assault on Mount Mitchell on Sunday, included your Jordan Mountain Challenge winner, Brian Schwarm, a fresh Jameis Factory team rider, Thomas Turner, Charlie Storm, uh, Michael Danish, Asheville locals, Jacob McGahey and John Stang, Eric Nicoletti, Wes Richards, Bob Moss, um, your second place women's, uh, podium place from the Jordan Mountain Challenger, Challenge, uh, Jennifer Moose, Loretta Simpson, Jadanka Warsham, Casey Armstrong, all, all towing the line. It certainly was going to be an exciting race at the front, uh, and with 500, uh, Racers competing, there were always going to be dark horses who are going to show up and perhaps spoil the party. Just after 8 o'clock in the morning, the field was led out from the start by the Old Fort Police Department to the bottom of the day's first climb, just three or four paved miles from the start. Leading into that first climb, which was an old toll road long since disintegrating into cracked concrete and closed to traffic, Thomas Turner showed he had no issues with everyone knowing his attention to win the race from the front.
As the climb continued onto the narrow switchbacks of Kitsuma, Turner was already alone with a gap he built on through the ensuing descent, as well as the next paved section, arriving at aid station one with a three and a half minute gap. Turner never looked back, gaining minutes through every checkpoint. Behind, Schwarm was actually doing the same to all other comers, building a huge gap over the chasers. To add insult to injury, Turner also recorded uh, the fastest time down the uh, Heartbreak Ridge descent, winning the Enduro Award for the day, with no other riders coming within two minutes of his high-speed technical descent. As the racers hit the top of Kitsuma for the second time, Turner already had a commanding lead of nearly 10 minutes over Schwarm, and Schwarm had nearly 20 minutes over a large chase pack that included Richards, Danish, Hall, and McGahee. At the line, it was Thomas Turner of Jameis Factory team in 4 hours, 23 minutes, a new course record, uh, beating the previous record of approximately uh, by approximately 10 minutes held by Jeremiah Bishop. Brian Schwarm of Pedal Pushers was second, nearly 13 minutes down, and Michael Danish a further 20 minutes back in third. David Hall and Alejandro Bello completed your open men's podium. In amongst those fast times were also men's 30-plus winner Jacob McGahey of the Industry 9 cycling team in five hours, five minutes, nearly 30 minutes in front of his closest competitors. Additionally, Wes Richards of Clemens Bicycle with the fifth fastest time of the day, crushing the O-Ram single-speed record, going sub-five hours, four hours, 58 minutes and change, with Bob Moss of the FS Series, 10 minutes back, and Eric Nicoletti, another further 10 minutes down, completing your single-speed men's podium. In the open women's race, Jordan Mountain Challenge runner-up seemed to have a little better pacing today in the form of Jennifer Moose, using a much more conservative pace to keep the tempo high, but steady through aid station number three at the top of Curtis Creek, where she held a deserved gap um, of over five and a half minutes back to Jadenko Warsham, with Casey Armstrong considerably further back. But the strong move of the day was Casey Armstrong's descent off Heartbreak Ridge, slotting in at one of the top five or six runs of all racers, men or women, and claiming the endurance segment winner for the women's categories nearly seven minutes faster than Moose and ten minutes faster than Warsham. Up front, though, it was all Moose who continued her steady pace. The climbs um, were error-free. The descending was error-free to take the win in five hours, 55 minutes, which is Jadenka Warsham of Constellation Cycling five minutes back and Casey Armstrong of TVB, a distant third, completing your women's podium at the off-road assault on Mount Mitchell. So a couple things to uh, bring up. Uh, there's the two series that we we really seem to follow here a lot on the last aid station um, is the Kenda National Ultra Endurance Series, which is your um, 100 milers or occasionally shorter than that uh, distance uh, mountain bike racing and the American Ultracross um, standings or series. Um, so what I wanted to do was uh, we're about halfway through both series, a little over for actually for both series. Actually, take a look at the standings and see who's leading those um, off um, at the at this point in the season. Um, in the NUE, um, heading into um, the final three or four races, um, with those being the Pierre's Hole, um, the New Hampshire, the Shenandoah 100, and then Fool's Gold. So 
four races remaining. Um, probably by the time you um, listen to this podcast, chances are Pierce Hall may have already occurred. Um, but anyhow, we're right in in with about three to four races to go, and finally to the point now where people have completed the minimum number, and so we can see um, really who who is standing out among the different divisions. Leading the women's open, Brenda Simrel with four wins, and with the only chance of anyone upsetting her now is for a woman who has already won one of the other races winning three of the four remaining races or someone winning every one of the last four. Very, very, very small chance, but entirely possible as there are several strong women who have and former actual NUE champions who have won a race previously still in the standings. Those people being the people that stand out here, um, Cheryl Sorensen, unlikely due to her concentration on a much more traditional cross country racing schedule. I don't see her planning on jumping in and um, attempting to win three or four more races. Could she, if she entered? Yes, she absolutely could. And she would definitely be a favorite to do so, but will she? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think she's going to be racing and completing the minimum number of races. Uh, Danielle Musto, again, highly unlikely. Danielle likes to stick up into her neck of the woods. She's very good at racing. Um, and she doesn't really need to, I mean, she's got a very, very robust, uh, scene up in that area, up in the Michigan, Wisconsin, Great Lakes region there. And, um, I just don't see her, um, doing that. Um, she raced lumberjack, one lumberjack. That's uh, almost a hometown race for her. She loves that race. And, um, but I don't think, um, because she did lumberjack, she has any intention on competing in any of the other races in the series. Molly Throdall, um, she's mostly a Colorado racer, but she did beat Simmerl at the Bailey Hundo. Again, she hasn't competed in any other races in the NUE series. And I just don't see her coming out and um, doing three of the four remaining races that for the most part are um, with the exception of Pierre's hole this weekend are all East coast races. Um, so um, Amanda Carey uh, possible, um, but she's also again, just like uh, Sorensen more concentrating on the traditional XC schedule. So um, I don't see her actually uh, deciding to race any of these uh, Missy Nash, who won uh, wilderness on the same weekend, Simmerl won big bear grizzly, as I've just reported on, she's an East coast girl could easily conceivably race the remaining races um, as most are only a one day's driving distance. Um, but her win was the only race so far on the NUE schedule that she has done. So time will tell whether um, she will compete in some of the other local races coming up, such as um, uh, New Hampshire and Shenandoah and then Fool's Gold to force the tiebreaker. Um, in the men's open, Jerry Fluke has a commanding lead on the series um, is the so far, but he is the only racer to have completed four races. Sitting in the wings with uh, better placings than Jerry on those races is Tinker Juarez, averaging just slightly worse than second uh, for the races with two seconds and a third. Um, he could definitely conceivably do something in the NUE standings. Um, uh, he will definitely need to pick up um, another race. I'm not sure if he's racing Pierre's hole this weekend. Um, I haven't seen a start list. Um, 
But if he would happen to come out west, he could easily unseat Jerry from that top position, gaining his fourth race, and he would just probably need to place in the top five to unseat Jerry from that those standings. Um, the other one, other ones that um, certainly everyone knows about Christian Tangi, who initially at the beginning of the season, I even reported on had not planned to compete in the NUE series for the overall plan and just do some races that he liked. Um, he has now completed three races. And so all he would really need is one more. He has high placings. He has two firsts and a third. Certainly um, Christian Tangi, uh, if he would happen to race Shenandoah or if he would happen to race, um, uh, New Hampshire or fool's gold um, certainly could unseat his own teammate in the form of Jerry fluke. And then of the gorilla in the room is Jeremiah Bishop. He's raced two races in the NUE series. He's won them both. And as we are recording this, he is en route to New Hampshire to race the NUE series there this weekend. So again, there's a chance, um, he has made finally made this made a confirmation that he will be um, racing the NUE series. He's obviously racing, um, going for the series title. I mean, he's obviously racing New Hampshire this weekend. That will be three. He always races his hometown race, which is the Shenandoah 100, um, and has raced the Fool's Gold before. So, chances are he's going to race three of the four um, coming up, and um, likely um, has a chance to win all four races and. Um, and be undisputed as far as the NUE series uh, title. Um, so uh, that's it for the men's open in the single speed division. Very interesting things have occurred in the days just before we went to recording this um, podcast. So AJ Linnell stands atop the standings with two firsts, two seconds over Daniel Rapp with a couple seconds and thirds. Can Rap improve on those to maybe move himself up? Very possible. Um, Trevor Rockwell and Ernesto Marinchin will be there likely fighting for podium spots, but I don't see them likely fighting for the top spots. Their placings are very good, usually top five, um, but kind of hard to compete against um, Linnell's two first, two seconds. Not mentioned yet. Gordon Wadsworth. Gordon Wadsworth has three first to his races. Um, and with a win in any of the last four races, which he will be racing all, I believe, could wrap it up way early. Yes. Um, this week, um, the week after Gordon Wadsworth got married, big congratulations to Mr. Wadsworth and his bride, Emily. Uh, but anyhow, um, making a short honeymoon of sorts, I guess jumped on a plane for Pierre's hole to force a match, a straight-up match between A.J. Linnell and himself, um, forcing the issue and such that if Gordon beats Linnell in that race, that is four first places um, and pretty much wraps up that event with Linnell then would have to chase points across the country um, on the East Coast mostly, Um I, I don't see that happening. So for, I am really excited to find out how those races go down this weekend. And I will be reporting on, on that in the next podcast, certainly. Um, but again, Wadsworth has decided to force the issue, has gone to meet Linnell and at the Pierce Hall race. And there will be a straight up single speed challenge, certainly going on there. Um, other mentions, Jace Ives 
Alan Frambois, Joe Malone, all have single race wins, but with no other races in the NUE series. Like literally those guys did one-off races in the NUE series. I don't see them chasing points in any of the other races and certainly not enough to make the four minimum races. So doubtful that they're going for the series title. And then, of course, the other big series um, that I previously mentioned is the American Ultra Cross Series. Um, consists of some of the biggest endurance gravel races in the U.S. Um, many people don't realize there's a series con- um, tied to some of these races, um, but it includes Southern Cross, Barry Roubaix, Hilly Billy Roubaix, Crusher and the Tusher, Iron Cross, Dirty Forty, and no, oh, I'm thinking one more Sub Nine Gravel Gravel. <laughs> um, with four races down so far this season and three to go. And with a point system nearly identical to the NUE. So the way the point systems works is it's your four best finishes. You need a minimum of four finishes and the lowest points win. So i.e. one point for first place, the best you could ever do with your four best scores would be four. And, um, and of course, as previously mentioned, uh, the monkey wrench in here has been, uh, the cancellation, as I mentioned in the news section, the cancellation of the Three Peaks USA. So riders who had been planning on competing there as one of their four, particularly those in the Southeast, will now need to find alternatives. Um, though all three remaining races are east in the Mississippi, being Iron Cross, Dirty 40 in Vermont and your sub nine gravel gravel in Indiana with that series stretching well into the fall. Certainly maybe changes in your race schedule could be accomplished. Um, in the women's open division, uh, Stephanie Swan of rare disease cycling has a firm grasp on the rankings um, with uh, two seconds and a first crystal. Anthony has a single first Um and certainly a very dominating performance at Hilly Billy Roubaix. But given her pedigree as an international level UCI cyclocross racer, I am sure she will not be competing in some of these races um, as the UCI cyclocross um, calendar approaches here within the next three to four weeks. Uh, Joey Lithgow has a first at Crusher and the Tusher. It's the only race she completed in and all the others with all the others east of the Mississippi, I'm guessing she is doubtful for this series. Um, Megan Coral has a single win, but like Anthony races cyclocross exclusively um, in the elite division in the fall. And I just don't see her uh, doing that at all um, in doing endurance uh, racing when um, she's trying to peak for uh one hour racing in UCI uh, cyclocross races in the single speed. Um, Jerry Fluke actually has two wins, but whether he will continue in the series racing single speed, um, cause he likely will be doing iron crosses. That's a, um, almost a go-to event for him near his Pennsylvania home, um, is unknown. I'm not sure if he, if, you know, cause he did the, he won both of those single speeds very early the season before he switched over to gears in the NUE series. Will that follow in the cyclocross? Not really sure. Um, both wins were, um, like I said, before that switch. So it, it'll be interesting to see what Jerry does um, as the uh, series rolls on into the um, next uh, over the next month or so. Daniel Rapp is leading the series by having the most races and best placings in those races a third, a seventh, and a first, but will likely really need to improve on that seventh place in the remaining races um, if he's really going to vie for the top spot. Uh, Jenner Shogren is in the mix. 
uh, with his second at Hilly Billy, but his participation in the three remaining events, especially given cyclocross season being a, a big thing for him also is very doubtful from my perspective. I see him potentially probably doing Iron Cross, depending on the cyclocross calendar um, in the mid-Atlantic, uh, but I'm really not really sure how that's going to go down. Um, in the open men's division, Mike Simonson has a firm grasp with two fourths and a first. Simonson had issues early in the season, but seems to have really worked all those kinks out um, and is really coming into some top form. Um, he kind of abandoned the NUE series, which he has competed in before in the past. Um, people that have spoken to him have said he's kind of really liking the gravel thing. Um, his, his training evidently is coming around. And like I said, that he is really starting to um, peak in the season. Um, I would bet his participation at the Indiana and Pennsylvania stops is likely as uh, Indiana is very close to him and Pennsylvania is a race that he has done previously. Looking across the list at others who could challenge Simonson include uh, Stephen Cummings having placed a close second to Simonson at um, Hilly Billy. Um, however, Cummings also loves cyclocross and um, usually races a full cyclocross calendar um, in the fall, and it will really depend on um, his perspective uh, of what he's going to target um, during cyclocross season. Justin Lowe is also a possibility, certainly for a top three in the standings, but again, he'll need to hit two of the last three in the series as he only has, um, he's only raced in two of the four thus far. And so, guys, that just about wraps up this episode of The Last Stage Station. Thank you very much for continuing to listen. I'm glad you guys are still coming by, taking a listen. I hope I'm helping your day go by faster. I hope I'm bringing you the information you're looking for. I'm keeping you filled in on all the details of how the races went down. Um, thank you. Keep sending those tips in. Um, that Gordon Wadsworth um, interview, um, though I'd been kind of hinting that I was going to do that uh, interview anyhow, um, really pushed me over the edge was the fact that I, I received an email from somebody who said, Hey, you should get him on. Um, I'd love to know where, you know, where, where he's come from and how he's exploded onto the scene and things like that. So, um, anyhow, keep, the, keep those emails coming. Uh, Mark at mountainbikeradio.com. Um, continue to check out our Facebook page, which is the last aid station. If you check it out there, um, we'll keep you posted on when we have new shows coming out. Um, and stay in touch with Mountain Bike Radio. Lots of other podcasts on there. I hope you're not just listening to mine because there are tons of other cool podcasts there. Um, everything, um, in the, off-road community. Um, and there's definitely something for anyone, uh, on there, but anyhow, thank you guys very much for tuning in. Um, like I said, I'll be bringing you a very shortened podcast in the very near future <clears throat> following the Breck Epic and that stage race and how it all went down and who was leading when and, uh, the, uh, GC, um, that'll be a much shortened version. Um, but hopefully we'll have that out to you within the week or so, um, that will, highlight every bit of that race so thank you guys very much and again my name is mark and this has been the last aid station on mountain bike radio